Welcome to TalkErie.com's Joel Natale Show, Erie, Pennsylvania's daily podcast. Every day, we tackle the biggest issues that the Erie, PA region faces. Stay informed and involved as we advance the narrative of Erie. Now, here's Joel Natale. At the front lines of that fight from the AHN uh, network is primary care physician, Dr. Brad Fox. We want to welcome you, Dr. Fox, to the program. Dr. Brad, I'm going to call you the rest of the show. How are you? I am great. I'm glad to be back. We haven't talked in, gosh, almost a year. Well, I think that, yeah, yeah. Last, last time it was we were knee-deep in COVID, and you were kind of giving us a perspective uh, from that front lines of, of primary care. And, again, that should be the first place you go when you're sick, right, is you call your PCP. That's what we advise. You know, we're here. We've got someone around 24 hours a day, seven days a week to take that call, give you advice as to what to do for your symptoms, what to do for testing, what to do for vaccinations. You know, you don't need to ask your friend or ask your Facebook. Oh, my gosh. All right. So let's let's roll back 90 to 120 days. Tell us about the bad parts of this pandemic as you saw them from your perspective. Well, the biggest thing, of course, early on was everyone getting sick um, and ending up in the hospital. If you look back at November, December, we were averaging several hundred people in the hospital. We were averaging double digits on vents and we were averaging you know, double digit deaths um, regularly. The virus was taking control. Um, we've since done a really good job of getting people to take things seriously, to wear their masks, to do their physical distancing. And then with the advent of the vaccine coming up, we've done a really good job uh, in the United States of getting uh, shots into arms, which has taken us from averages in the two plus hundreds in November, December, into January, into the averages in the hospital right now in barely double digits. Yeah, it's like 15 or so. Um in the hospital. And again, it was as low as six. Um, and again, I know, I know that and we're, and we're, we're always given this data. We're like a, a, like a, a fire hose on the data, but really it's the, it's the, uh, if you can stay out of the hospital, that's really the goal here. Not necessarily that nobody gets sick. Again, we don't want anybody to get sick, but Again, people get illnesses, right? People get measles. I had a terrible case of the chicken pox when I was 15. It happens, but I didn't have to go to the hospital for that. And that's, that's the key here, too. Well, and that's the big thing with the virus, especially with the new strains that we're seeing. You know, the uh, UK strain, the 1.1.7, has been much more virulent, which means um, it makes people sicker faster um, and it's more contagious. And we've seen it a lot more in younger people because of three things. One, the older people are getting vaccinated uh, through with phase one. Two, they've done a really good job of social distancing and masking. And three, um, the younger people have been the other side where uh, as restrictions have loosened, people have been gathering. So we've seen a lot younger people getting a lot sicker and the hospitalizations went from being 70 plus percent over the age of 60, 65 to less than right around 50% with the another 30% or more coming in that 21 to 45 range, which, you know, you're starting to look at the younger population getting sick, which is not what we saw early on. So when somebody, uh, let's say they're 35, 40 years old, 
and they have to be hospitalized. What is it usually for? Uh, is it is it shortness of breath? Uh, is it uh, um, you know what what are the prevailing symptoms? What are, what's presenting when you say you know what you need to go to the ER? Most of the time when we're admitting people, it's due to poor movement of oxygen. So their oxygen levels get low. So if you're not getting oxygen to your heart, you're not getting oxygen to your brain, you're not getting oxygen to your body, your body fatigues quickly and things start to break down. So most of the people who end up in the hospital end up in the hospital with respiratory symptoms and difficulty breathing, getting oxygen where it needs to go. Um, One of my patients who recently passed away from it um, actually was in my office about two weeks earlier saying, I'm really afraid I'm gonna get COVID and ended up actually getting it surprisingly enough and ended up in the hospital with weakness, fatigue, just generalized malaise. He couldn't stay awake long enough to eat. So he wasn't eating and drinking, ended up in the hospital, was in for three days, went home, had a relapse, ended up on a vent and ended up passing away from COVID-19. He was 40, you know, yeah, 50, 50 years old just had just turned 50 years old. So a lot younger than you would expect um, based on what we had for the last 10 months, you know? uh, Somebody had mentioned the the monoclonal uh, antibodies, you know, to, you know, for people that are fully symptomatic, that, that they've seen a lot of promise in keeping people out of the hospital. Have you seen, you know, have you seen kind of any rise of therapeutics um, short of the vaccine? Well, I don't do a lot of the hospital stuff. In fact, I don't do any of the hospital okay. stuff. So once they're in, I kind of watch watch the computer and watch the chart. So um, I let them run most of that show. As far as prophylaxis and things like that, I'm reading about it, but I've not done it myself, Joe. Okay, so it's it's still not very prevalent that, you, that you've seen, at least in your purview. The... Um, right. the uh, I mean, I'm I'm just thinking about, you know, you're doing a lot of telehealth. I mean, tell us the state of primary care right now uh, from your point of view. Well, uh, we're getting back to what it used to be, but we're still doing a lot of video visits. I've got people who are not coming out until essentially everything is back to normal. So I may never see them again. Um, We've done, you know, if you, if you roll through what the year was like, you know, back in, Uh, March, April last year, they shut us down completely. I was literally either doing video visits and I was in the office one day a week seeing people who needed to be touched to be evaluated, you know, acute injuries and seeing little kids who, you know, we knew weren't going to be a problem, infants that needed well child checks and vaccines. Otherwise, everything was by telephone or by video. Now we're doing a lot more in the office, but we still do have a lot of people who would much prefer to see us the way you and I are communicating mm-hmm. right now by video. And the one thing you lose from that is you lose the ability to put hands on. So you have to presume the heart's beating regularly and that the lungs are clear. And uh, the one downfall for me is I picked up atrial fibrillation because I happened to listen to someone's heart that was feeling fine and noticed their heartbeat was irregular. I've picked up wheezing and you know, gotten chest x-rays and found things in people's lungs because I've actually listened to them when they were in the office. So the one backslide on doing video is you don't get that ability, but you do get to talk to people. And, you know, as a family doc, one of the things that I pride myself in, and I know a lot of us do, is the communication of it and talking and working through and helping people to manage their own health by 
working with them verbally. Mm -hmm. So a lot of what we do, especially preventive medicine, can be done just like you and I are talking right now. Wow. And I'm, and I'm thinking about, too, all of our conversations, you know, with folks in the behavioral health and mental health that say the, the, the front door of behavioral health and mental health is the primary care physician. You know, you're usually having that conversation and somebody will, you know, will admit, you know, gee, doc, I've been feeling blue to, uh, lately or I, I'm really getting a lot of anxiety. And, and, uh, and you, you know, sometimes you're even doing some of those prescriptions as well. That's really hard to do when, again, when there's, there's that lack of connection or am, am I washed up on that? Sometimes I'm doing those positions, those prescriptions, Joel. I would say probably 50, 60% of what we do involves mental health, even in, you know, very healthy people. You know, everybody that we see, we do depression screening on. And I will tell you with COVID, um, a lot of the depression screenings are coming back, mild to moderate depression, even in people who don't feel as though they've been depressed. I had somebody the other day who was moderate to severe depression, and I had a long conversation with her and said, you know, you're, come, you're testing off as moderate to severe depression. She goes, well, I don't think I'm depressed. I think it's the vaccine. I haven't seen my mother. I haven't seen my grandmother. I don't get to go out. And I used to go out weekly with my friends to go to dinner. I haven't seen them in 10 months. Um, my uh, brother won't get vaccinated. So I'm stressed about that. Wow. So I don't know that I'm depressed but all the answers to the depression questions are coming back, you're depressed. And that was a very long conversation of, do we need to do something with medicine? Do we need to have you know, counseling, therapy? Or, and her com comment was, we need to get the vaccine into people's arms so that we can get back to normal. Mm -hmm. And that's how her depression is gonna go away. Yeah, she's kind of seeing the, the macro and making it personal. And that's that's sure. that's tough, tough to navigate. A um, couple more minutes before we take our break here with Dr. Brad Fox from AHN. The um, what about the other stuff? Again, think about you know what are you dealing with right now? There's a lot of allergies. There's uh, people that are falling. Uh, we have accidents and and uh, bruises and things like that. Uh, uh, what's happening with that part of primary care? Well, and that's how life went on. Uh, when we shut down and closed the offices, we were open to things where people, you know, twisted their ankle. It's hard to treat a sprained ankle over the phone because you don't know if they broke it. You don't know how severe the, the sprain is. So we bring them in. People with abdominal pain, you can't diagnose abdominal pain via video. We'd bring them into the office, pelvic pain the same way. Um, we did put off a lot of um, well women stuff mm -hmm. because- you know, it's routine. We don't want to put someone at risk for getting ill because we're doing routine things. We did do a lot of histories without physicals uh, via video. Uh, allergies is interesting. Um, with the masks, I'm seeing less allergies at change of season right now than I usually see. Probably because wow. people are filtering with their masks and not inhaling everything. And you know, we saw almost no flu. Right. I mean, last year, in April, um, there were over 4,000 cases of the flu in this area. We've had fewer than, I think, 20 reported cases in Erie County. Um, How about that RSV? The little, the little babies were getting the RSV. Have, you've not seen Almost that nothing. either? Almost wow. nothing. Oh, yeah. It's, it's been a very, very good season for routine illnesses. And people aren't getting out. People aren't getting together. People aren't shaking hands, hugging, swapping, whatever you know, get swapped, um, that causes 
the passage of viral illnesses. Um, so if you look at what they do in, you know, Eastern Europe and Asia during flu season, they wear masks and there's much less flu. We're doing it here because of a huge pandemic. The, the, the positive side, if you want to look at a positive side, is we've seen very few flu. I don't think there have been, I mean, I'm sure there's no, been no deaths from flu, and I'm not sure there were any hospitalizations from flu this year, which is unheard of. So, um, you know, the flip side of illnesses and allergies, people are getting sick. People with ear infections, though, interestingly enough, they'll, the ear infections about 80% of the time will cure themselves. And the recommendation for ear infections is to not give antibiotics until it's been around for several days or to give the parent the for a kid a prescription for an antibiotic and say if they still have an ear ache in three days, fill the prescription. But everyone, of course, fills it day one, takes the antibiotics and they get better because time fixed it, whether the antibiotic helped or not. People now with ear infections are waiting three and four days and saying, hey, I've had an earache for three or four days. I'm coming in as opposed to I woke up this morning, my ear hurt, I skipped school and I'm coming to see you. So I think the pandemics changed the way people look at how they want to utilize what we do when it comes to regular illnesses and injuries and things. Huge, huge uh, learnings here from Dr. Brad Fox of AHM. At the peak, uh, you're seeing a lot of people on video and uh, over the phone. And uh, you indicated that, uh, you, you know, there was, there was this uh, protocol that you were following as far as testing goes. Can you explain that and how it's changed to where it's at right now? Well, when we first started testing back in the spring, we were limited to ordering it on people who were exposed or probably or possibly exposed with symptoms because the number of tests that were available, the number of testing slots that were available, the amount of time that was available was very limited. Over the course of the summer, um, we were able to loosen the restrictions on what symptoms made, meant. So initially it was true respiratory symptoms, shortness of breath, cough. Um, this is before the sense of smell and taste was drilled into us. Um, over the summer, it became really, if you had symptoms that were consistent with anything out of your ordinary. So if you had GI symptoms where you were nauseous or um, had stomach upset, if you had respiratory illnesses, sense of taste and smell, of course, were there from the time they figured that out. And you didn't necessarily need to have a known exposure. Now, if people have a possible exposure, have any symptoms, um, we can order testing. Uh, if work is requiring people to go back to, to get a test to go back to work, we're still, by my organization, being told we shouldn't order those and have them you know, do the, the stuff that the pharmacies are doing that you can schedule for yourself uh, online. As Joel, I think you mentioned, you know about that. Yeah. Um, but... We can, for people who have any reason to suspect they might have the uh, illness, fatigue that's beyond the normal, um, respiratory symptoms. And what's interesting, you mentioned allergies before. I had a couple of people sent home from work because they sneezed and had some sniffles that have allergies this year, time of the year, every year. And they asked me, do I get tested or do you write me a letter saying you have allergies? If it had been a month and a half, two months ago, I probably said, you know what, I'll write you the letter. Now that there's so much available testing, get the test done and I'll write you a letter. Yeah. So that's how things have loosened up. Um, I think it's probably going to get even more different as people get vaccinated because, yes, you can get the virus after the vaccination. But if you've been vaccinated, 
what do you have to show me to get tested? Mm. You know, are we going to suspect that you have something else, allergies, the actual flu, um, other viral illnesses, et cetera? Aren't you surprised, uh, and, and maybe you can correct me on this, but to my knowledge, it's very few people have uh, at, at the point of care, the point of care uh, situation, where that Abbott Lab rapid testing is still not readily available in Erie County. I would have thought by now, a year in, that you know somebody would be coming in with symptoms and you say, well, let's do a COVID test on you, and they'd do the, the Abbott Labs deal and, and find out within 15 to 45 minutes. Uh, that's still not a thing yet, huh? No. Um, in fact, what's really funny is they've approved home testing before right. they've got the rapid testing test, that right? I can do in the office. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh my goodness! So that that you know, and it's the way. It, I'm going to be okay. This is not my employer speaking. This is me speaking. And if I get in trouble for it, I get in trouble for it. But I think part of it has to do with revenues. Um, you know, if, right now the PCR testing, the testing that gets done at the labs, is paid for by the government. I don't know that there's a mechanism for us to do in the offices where it will get paid for. So therefore, you know, cost effect. Now this is me speculating. Sure. This is not H and I'm not speaking for my employer. I just look at it as where, where the money lies, home testing. Obviously people are paying to have it done. Right. The governor is paying the labs and paying the hospitals. So I think that's where the focus is as far as getting the tests you know, available. The pharmacies get them. Etc. Because that's where the revenue from the government is going to pay for it. That's my speculation. Sure. Not my employer. Right. I don't, you know. Well, and and again, I think about what you do at, at primary care. So if somebody comes in and they've got this horrible cough or or um, you know sore throat. You what do you do? You swab them for strep, and you can do that right in the office, right? The strep, absolutely. The, the fast strep test, and then you go and and I'm thinking about serological tests. You know, when I go and get my A1C done. I know mm-hmm. in 24 hours what my number is, right? If you come into my office and you forgot to get your blood work done, you can know in eight minutes. Oh, oh, seriously? For for like a finger, for like that finger stick. Okay. Yep. Well, that, yeah, yeah. So you're for glucose levels, right? So yeah, no, yeah. no, no, no. Oh. A1C. Oh, really? Yeah, I oh, can do an A1C that, in my office in, that's in pretty, eight minutes. That's pretty. That's pretty advanced, there, Doctor Brad. I, uh, that's pretty mm. amazing. So anyway, all all that the you know that. That that just leads to the question of what's going to be the new normal in primary care when you when you think about this because I think for for one thing telehealth is not going anywhere right uh, it's not gonna well the te- interesting um, as far as the video visits it's not going anywhere we're going to be doing a lot of that the telephone visits right now where we talk to people without the video. There's a lot of discussion as to whether that's going to continue to be paid at the same level that it is. If it turns into a much less payment model, then I think that's going to go by the wayside. And that's a decision that's being discussed way higher levels than I'm at. But uh, for at least the foreseeable future, we'll be doing video visits, we'll be doing telephone visits. A lot of the routine stuff will be done um, via the network as opposed to -to face-to-face stuff. I mean, I still make house calls. And I haven't made a house call since COVID started um, because that just is not a smart move. But I think those days will come back again. Um, as far as the new norm, as far as testing in the office, because the, that's the other part you were talking about, we can do rapid flus in the office. You know, we have those available. Um, we can do the rapid streps. We can do rapid pregs. 
if they do down the road have rapid COVID testing, I think if this becomes a seasonal as opposed to a one and done, um, we'll be doing rapid COVID testing by this time next year or you know, whatever the season's going to be, we'll be able to do it in our offices by then. Um, and you know, there's talk about, do you need seasonal boosters, et cetera? We'll talk about that later. Dr. Brad, you've seen a lot of COVID patients and uh, you've even lost some COVID patients and that's got to weigh in on your advocacy for the vaccine, right? Well, yeah, I've had more than 100 and uh, we, we, we stopped counting at about 130. When uh, we hit 130 patients who'd had it, we kind of stopped counting. I've lost personally two patients to COVID. I've had uh, four patient family members die of COVID. I've lost two friends to COVID-19. Oh my gosh. So from that standpoint, um, yeah, I'm an advocate for the vaccinations. I mean, the vaccines work. Uh, if you look at the trend in hospitalizations, it, as we talked about earlier, um, at the beginning of the virus and all the way up through November, December, uh, the average person was over 60, 70 some percent of the time. Right. Now that we're getting those people vaccinated, last count in the hospital, the, uh, what, 25, 30% were, for, uh, 30 were 41 to 60, only 50% were over 60. And then the other 18 to 20% were under 40. So that shows that the vaccine is working because the people aren't getting sick and getting hospitalized. And nationwide, I mean, right now, it, it's amazing. We, I think we've got 192 million doses given totally. At least 120, almost 122 and a half million people have had one dose and 75 million people are fully vaccinated. That's, that's great. That's, those are good numbers. And that's going to help keep people healthy. And then you're going to say, well, then why are the numbers going up? <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, we, we're kind of seeing, uh, you, you know, we're going the wrong direction, at least uh, to a mod moderate degree here in Erie County. Yeah, well, a big part of that is having had the restrictions pulled back. And a lot of people feel that you pulled them back a little, maybe I can get away with a lot. I was out shopping today before we were doing this. And the number of people I saw unmasked, or with masks here, mm -hmm. you know, and I'm making a finger sign showing my nose exposed. Right. I realize we're not on TV um, <laughs> with masks down below their noses was incredible to me based on what I've seen for the last, you know, four or five, six months where people really were getting it. Now people are taking their chances and they're going to restaurants. They're going out in groups. They're getting together. Well, if one person has um, the virus and you're not inoculated, chances of you getting it are just as high as they were before. In fact, they're higher because the UK variant jumps to people, people to people much quicker, and it's much more virulent, which means it can make you sicker. So that's why our numbers are going up. On the other hand, if you do have the full inoculation, uh, especially as we talk about the Moderna or the Pfizer, uh, I mean, it, it almost feels like you have superpowers. I, I mean, it's really effective, isn't it? It's 95% effective from keeping you from getting sick from the virus, okay? So you still might get the virus, but you're not going to get sick 95% of the time. We're not 100% sure how much of that means if you get the virus, you won't transmit it to somebody. But if I'm 95% protected from getting sick 
and you're 95% protected from getting sick, if I have the virus, the chances of you getting it from me and getting sick is infinitesimally small. Yeah. Okay. So that's where it comes in that if you're vaccinated and I'm vaccinated, you and I can spend time together without a mask closer than six feet apart um, for more than 15 minutes. And, you know, in the old days, I say the old days, a year ago, you remember <laughs> Kathy Dahlkemper saying, I wear my mask to protect you. Yes. You wear your mask to protect me. Well, now with the vaccine, I get my vaccine to protect me and also to protect you. Mm. So it's kind of the same idea. If I have a vaccine and you have a vaccine, we are not going to get it. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Um, uh, talk about what's in it. I, you know, there's a lot of misinformation and, you know, like 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 you were saying earlier in the first half hour, uh, you know, li- talk to your PCP, not talk to your Facebook friends. So so mm-hmm. literally, especially these mRNAs, I think they're like miracle drugs. I mean, it's, they're truly amazing uh, technology. Well, the, the idea behind it, just to simplify it and, you know, I probably over gonna, I'm going to oversimplify it. Most vaccines are made from proteins that are in the wall of a virus. And it's true protein from that virus. So you're taking a piece of the virus, not the whole virus, which is why you don't get the virus, but you're taking a piece of the virus, you're injecting it into somebody and that person says, oh, this is a foreign thing. I'm going to develop antibodies to it. With the mRNA vaccines, it's more of a synthetic virus. So you're not taking a piece of a regular virus, you're taking what is close enough to, it's a synthetic version of the virus. So the JNJ and the AZ are actual pieces of the virus similar to the flu vaccine, whereas the mRNA is your technologically prepared version of it. Um, What we've seen is that people who have gotten the virus have developed antibodies, but that antibody response wanes over 90 days. So it's not robust. And it after 90 days or so, it goes away. Whereas with the, at least the mRNA vaccines, we're seeing a more robust response with antibodies. And it's already lasted. We've got documented uh, evidence that it lasts over six months. Okay. So, you know, people say, why do you get vaccinated if you had COVID? And the answer is because your natural immunity isn't as strong and it fades over time. The question then is why do you wait 90 days after getting COVID to get the vaccine? One is because your natural immunity wanes then, and you worry that if you already have some immune response by injecting the um, mRNA, by injecting the vaccine, your body may hyper respond and then you can have more side effects, et cetera, and people get side effects. You don't want to enhance their side effects. Talk about that again. That that's that makes people skittish too. They're expecting their arm to fall off, or or you know have these spiky fevers or whatever. What have you seen in, in primary care about side effects from the vaccine? Well, it runs the gamut. I you know I had both of my Pfizer vaccines, and the first one I got, if I poked the area, it was like the Simpsons episode. Ow, ow, ow! Every time I touched it. Um, the second time, I literally didn't know I got a vaccine. And the next day I was like, gosh, I'm nothing. So I had zero side effects whatsoever. Um, The typical people are getting no side effects or pain at the site, which is really the most common one is a little inflammation, a little redness, a little pain at the site. You can get respiratory problems. You can get fatigue. Similar to when people get flu shots, they feel a little logy afterwards. Everyone says, I got the flu from a flu shot. 
No, your body's immune system kicked in, representing an activation of your killer cells that make your body maybe feel a little logy, maybe feel a little bit wiped out because you're developing an immunity to an insult to your body that luckily isn't actually the disease. So you don't get the flu, you get the side effects that you might've gotten while your body fights the flu. Well, it's the same thing with the COVID vaccine. You can get some of those symptoms, significant fatigue, you know, body aches, muscle aches, some respiratory stuff, fever, but it's short-lived. There are very few cases of anaphylaxis, okay? The reason you stay, anaphylaxis, by the way, is an overreaction shock, uh, your body kind of, um, it's like getting a beast. It's like getting a bee sting if you're it's allergic like to bees. Sting. Yeah, right. So that's why after your vaccine, you wait for 15 minutes, and we have mm-hmm. doctors and nurses um, watching over you to make sure that you don't get one of those severe side effects. Um, I do have a patient that got hives afterward, but this person in particular gets hives after every vaccine. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't the COVID vaccine that did it. It was the fact that she got a vaccination that did it. And after the first one, she got hives. We premedicated her with Benadryl and other medicines before the second one. And she still got hives with the oh, second wow. one. Yeah. So um, it happens. I, I'm interested, you know, like I, I, I experienced, like you say, some sight pain. It felt like a, like a goose egg on, you know, like I got hit by a baseball kind of thing. And, um, and then some uh, lethargy, you know, and and then the next day had a little GI thing going on. But really, after like 48 hours, it was like nothing. Yeah. And that's typically what I'm seeing is nothing to 24, 36 hours worth of symptoms and then literally back to normal. There's not right. a, a ramp up or ramp down. It's it's turned on, turned off. It's pretty remarkable. So what so. Why do you, why are patients coming to you? What, when they say, doc, I really don't want to get this vaccine. What are you telling them? Well, it, it was fu- funny. You should ask that. Cause yesterday I spent most of the day saying, Hey, have you had your first COVID vaccine? Would you like me to schedule it for you? And I got a lot of, I'm still thinking about it. And you know, it's like, what are you thinking about? And they're like, well, I'm not sure if I really want it or not. And I pulled up a little piece of data that, um, I actually handed him my phone and the data piece was per million residents, COVID-19 hospitalizations, uh, 6,236 hospitalizations per million residents, COVID-19 deaths, 1,693 deaths per million residents, per million doses administrated of the vaccine, 52 serious reactions per million doses. Where is the math not working for you. Right. And I had two people who scheduled and I had five people who said, I'm still going to think about it, doc. Thanks. Though. <laughs> so, I mean, I didn't convince everybody, mm-hmm. but I did convince a couple people by showing them, you know, it's extremely safe. You know, they, it, I told you that uh, worldwide, there've been um, over 380 million doses, I believe given so far. And there've been fewer than 250 reported significant adverse events and no deaths directly attributed to any of the vaccines. You know, so, there's some there's some crazy data that people are sharing on Facebook too. Like they say it's from the CDC. You know, there's you know there's that open data reporting thing about any incidences that surround the oh, vaccine, yeah. and people are uh, interpreting that as like you know that it's it's a bad deal. It, there's a lot of misinformation, oh, sure. I should say. 
Well, and, and you know, people can report anything they want to. When they go back and investigate, um, like I said, there's not been a single death directly associated to any of the vaccines at this point. Um, the other part of it is, you know, they're talking about infertility and they're talking about, I mean, there's a lot of unsubstantiated um, fears um, that has no data behind it. The real data is that you're more likely to, have, to die on your way to get the uh, vaccine than you are to die from the vaccine because yeah. the incidence of car accidents with death is much greater than the incidence of an adverse event from a vaccine. Forget dying from it. You're more likely to get killed in a car accident than you are to die or have an adverse event from the vaccine. You're more likely to get struck by lightning than to die from the vaccine. We have this situation here where, you know, there's this some some folks have this vaccine hesitancy, yet they want everything to go back to normal. And and it really it goes hand in hand where you get normal when you get to the herd immunity, which you need a lot of people vaccinated, don't you? Well, you need about 75 to 80% based on the efficacy of our vaccinations to get to the point where herd immunity would come into play. And the interesting part of it is, is that unlike a lot of illnesses where you get the illness, you develop the antibodies and that plays into herd immunity, as I mentioned earlier, natural immunity based on getting the COVID-19 virus may not give you the protection that you get from the vaccine. So the herd immunity may not be as strong at 75 to 80%. And that's what worries me a little bit is that people say, well, I had COVID, I don't need the vaccine. And that's gonna extend the life of the virus. The other thing I tell people, and this is, you know, it's a scare tactic, but I love it anyway, <laughs> is once we get to the point where 75%, 80% of the people are vaccinated, the virus is still gonna be out there and it's gonna be looking for a host. It's going to try to find that person that can still take it on. And the virus that's going to survive the best is going to be the most lethal and the most mm. virulent virus because that's how things mutate. You know, survival of the fittest, and in the case of a virus, survival of the best able to adapt to the fact that 80% or 85% of the country is vaccinated. Now, do you want to be the person that gets that virus? I, wow. I don't, but I'm vaccinated. So that's the other piece of it is, you know, the virus that's going to exist. It's sort of like wild type chicken pox. You don't see a lot of chicken pox now, but when you see it, it's a pretty bad thing yeah. because that's what survives. Uh, moving forward here, uh, you know, do you get a sense for uh, your patients that uh, that they'll be, you know, if they get the vaccination that that, you know, it's going to go well for them and. You know, what 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 does this, you know, coming year look like, I guess, uh, in you know, in your practice? Well, hopefully getting back to uh, normal office, you know, right now I'm still wearing a face shield and a surgical mask. And my parents, my parents, geez, my patients are still wearing masks. My parents are not my patients are still wearing masks in the room as well. The rules, if you're vaccinated two weeks out. Technically, you don't need to be masked. You don't need to be, you know, social distancing, physical distancing. Yet, right now, for abundance of caution, I'm still double masked, uh, or at least single masked and face shield with every patient. Yeah. I can't wait to get to the point where I can walk into a room without a mask or a shield on. I need that. That's, the, that's my sanity. And I'm sure my patients need that, too. 
So the more we get people vaccinated, the less likely I'm going to be worried about walking around my office and inadvertently exposing somebody that may not have been vaccinated yet. Yeah. So I think the the return to traditional visits, you know, is going to be a welcome thing for most of. I don't know if you've been to your doctor since the pandemic. I um, have, but yeah. But did I you wear a mask? Sick. And oh, was gosh, your doctor wearing yeah. a mask and shield? Yeah, exactly. Did you feel as comfortable that way as you mm. do when you're face to face talking like we are through a screen? Well, no, no. And, and and again, uh, these poor these poor practitioners have to almost dress like they're spacemen. I mean, with the full PPE and the the gowns and the whole bit. It's 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 a lot, and that's got to be. Well, and, I mean, you're trying to do your job with all this stuff on you. Well, and the thing that'll make you laugh is that um, I rarely look at a nose or a, th- a mouth or a throat anymore because. Mm. If there's not a respiratory complaint or a mouth or a nasal complaint, I keep the mask on my patients. So when we get to the point where I'm routinely looking at noses and throats, it's going to be a total culture shock for me again. <laughs> you know, the other day I had to see somebody who was having respiratory, you know, some sinus stuff. I'm like, okay, pull your mask back. I'm like, oh my God, a nose. <laughs> I'm seeing a nose in the office, you know, because I've That's spent a the schnoz, last year, you know, <laughs> I've spent the last year not looking at them. Yeah, yeah honestly. Right. Wow. So. I, you, you know, you, you read, you read the trades, you read the journals and things. Um, th- has the pandemic had any impact on, uh, you know, uh, addressing the primary care shortage or is it exasperated it? Um, interestingly enough, and there's uh, some data coming out now that not just primary care, there are a lot of doctors who were on the edge of retirement who've quit. Wow. Just. This was, this was the thing that pushed them over the edge because the televisits weren't comfortable for them or the lack of patient contact or the way they had to do patient contact or having to wear a mask or having to, you know, being worried about getting the disease themselves. You know, mm-hmm. people in their 60s, people, you know, who are on that cusp of retirement um, said, you know what, I don't need this. And a lot of people walked away from the profession. So did it help the primary care shortage? I think if anything, it hindered that because I think a lot of people who may not have retired or may have kept a full robust practice have walked away from it. Um, I don't think it's pushed a lot of residents to come into family medicine, although I will tell you that the family medicine match this year was the highest in recorded history. I'm thrilled by that. That's a good thing. but uh, I don't think it helped. I don't think the pandemic helped any specialty in medicine. And it, it certainly cost people in private practice their practices. A lot of, a lot of primary care docs, and um, I think it hit primary care a lot more than some other specialties, went under because they couldn't see patients in the office. They couldn't make the, the payments. They couldn't keep their bills. So they either had to become employed physicians or they decided you know, I'm not going to do this anymore. So I think it actually wow. hurt primary care from that aspect. That's that's an underreported story right there to, to think that people are losing their practices because of, you know, you can't do a, you can't do a knee replacement, you know, for six months in, in some of the larger markets or something. I'm, I'm just wondering. Well, actually, it's the other way around. It's, it's, it? it's more in the rural areas. In the rural. Okay. You know, you were kept from, do, you know, you're mm-hmm. in, in the larger areas, more people are employed and, gotcha. you know, the hospital systems. I mean, my hospital system did a very good job of keeping us busy yeah. and also recognizing that our productivity was down because of the fact we couldn't see patients in the office. But people who are running their own businesses, you know, every patient you don't see is money you don't have that 
keeps something off the table or a bill you can't pay or a vaccine you can't order or, you know, an employee you can't pay. Yeah. I would imagine Dr. Pimple Poppers, you know, creating a lot of interest in dermatology, right? (laughs) Oh, I'll tell you something. If we, if we get more dermatologists, we are so short on dermatologists. I know it's so hard to get, to get that melanoma looked at. Oh my gosh. We're going to have to leave it there. Uh, Dr. Brad Fox, uh, 30 seconds, give your best, uh, pitch for getting the vaccine. Everyone wants to go back to normal. The best way to get back to normal is to be immune or at least protected from the virus. The only way to get protected from the virus is to get vaccinated. So if you want to lose the mask, if you want to lose the distance, if you want to actually enjoy your friends and you want to enjoy your life, get the vaccine because without it, we're going to be struggling for a long, long time. You've been listening to The Joel Natale Show, Erie, Pennsylvania's daily podcast from TalkErie.com. Subscribe to our show on your favorite podcatcher and get involved by emailing joel at TalkErie.com.